Section 18 of The Heroines of History. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Adam Marcetich, July 2010. The Heroines of History by John S. Jenkins. Section 18. Josephine, Part 1. A truer, nobler, trustier heart, more loving or more loyal, never beat within a human breast. Baron. The island of Martinique claims the distinction of being the birthplace of Josephine, who was born the 24th day of June, 1768. Her father, Monsieur de Tascher, was a man of influence and moderate wealth, possessing a large plantation and an ample retinue of slaves. He was a man of ambition and unyielding sternness, and to this, in a great measure, was owing the misfortunes which embittered Josephine's early life and threw her into the whirl of events that bore her on to greatness and suffering. Her childhood was spent in lively sports and amusements, attended by young negresses who were permitted to indulge her every whim, and accustomed to obey instantly the most childish requirements, till, by unlimited indulgence, her naturally sweet disposition was in danger of being spoiled. Fortunately, Madame de Tascher was wise enough to see this, and brought Josephine more within her maternal influence, allowing her a larger share of the affection which had been almost exclusively bestowed upon the elder, more beautiful, and only sister, Maria. The latter, like her mother, was of sedentary habits and a mild, unimpassioned temperament. Thus, they had more sympathies in common, while Josephine was all vivacity and enthusiasm. She was a favorite with her father, and from him came all the instruction she received, till, on reaching her twelfth year, she was placed under the superintendence of Maria's teacher, who gave her lessons in the form of amusements. Her sociability and excessive fondness for dancing led Madame de Tascher often to give fetes, at which the young creoles of the island were assembled. But the sombre Maria rarely participated in these festivities, much preferring to pursue her studies or to ramble alone. She was busily occupied in cultivating such talents as she possessed and acquiring those accomplishments deemed necessary to a woman of the world in anticipation of a future home in France where an aunt, in influential circumstances, had offered to provide her with an establishment, and designed her hand for the son of the Marquis de Beauharnois. Josephine, on the contrary, looked upon the island of Martinique as her continued home. When she gazed over the ocean that separated her from the rest of the world, it created no longings to mingle in the dissipation and reckless folly that her mother described to her as pervading la belle france but the sight inspired in her a strong love of grandeur and sublimity and increased her already lively imagination but there was a spell 
that bound her heart to Martinique, which gave her contentment in its quiet retreats, or otherwise her active, restless spirit must have sought a wider world. Through all her childhood, Josephine had shared her amusements with William de K., the son of English parents, who had sought refuge in Martinique after the fall of the House of Stuart, whose cause they espoused, and therefore suffered prosecution. The two children had grown up together in happy companionship, and formed an attachment that was never effaced. When Josephine reached her twelfth year, she had made so little progress in her studies, though an apt scholar, that Madame de Tascher decided to send her to France and place her in a convent till the completion of her education. But this was a terrible stroke to the young lovers, to whom separation would have been the greatest grief. By the most earnest assurances from Josephine of her future application, she was permitted to remain on trial. During the following six months, she made such rapid progress as persuaded her mother to recall her threat of sending her from Martinique, and she not only allowed her to continue her studies with William de K under the same master, but through the interposition of his mother, Josephine's hand was promised him conditionally. Thus they happily and lovingly remained together, studying or rambling for shells along the seashore, carving their united names upon the trees, or gathering the beautiful blossoms of the amaryllis gigantea, a plant which she so admired for its associations as well as its beauty, that she afterwards planted to the garden of Malmaison, where it still grows luxuriantly. Not long after Monsieur de K was called to England and was accompanied by his son, with the avowed purpose of pursuing his studies at Oxford, but unknown to himself or Josephine, the real object of the voyage was to assert heirship to an estate which Monsieur de K was to inherit on condition his son should marry the niece of the testator. The months of silence that ensued were so full of anxiety on Josephine's part that her health was evidently suffering from it. No letter nor message came from the young Creole, who had seemingly forgotten her in the new interests of the great world, yet she would not believe the representations of her friends that he had ceased to love her. To console and divert her, Madame de Tascher gathered young companions in their pleasant home and endeavored to occupy her mind by an interest in the study of languages and accomplishing herself upon the harp. She possessed a sweet, plaintive voice, and that kind of talent which readily acquires anything placed within its reach with little application. She chiefly enjoyed quiet walks with Mademoiselle de K when they would lounge together under the shade of romantic cedars, talking for hours of William, or throw stones at tree marks, to ascertain by the stroke if her lover was faithless. But this friendship was of short duration, for Mademoiselle de K. deceived her. 
Josephine's true, transparent nature had affinity only with candor and simplicity, and she could no longer endure her artful friend. While the Pagerie mansion was gay with the young Creole girls, gathered to amuse Josephine, a new excitement one day aroused them from a languid siesta and inspired them with all the vivacity which so especially belongs to the French, the fortune-telling fame of an old Irish woman, or, as some have it, a negress, called Euphemia, who lived in a sequestered and wild retreat called the Three Islets, reached their ready ear. Curious to lift the veil of futurity, they one and all decided to consult the oracle. Josephine accompanied her companions more for their pleasure than her own, not wanting to believe what might be predicted, but with a secret thought of William, she followed the gay party, who, with laughter and harmless sallies at each other's expense, hastened to the dark, rocky glen, where the fortune-teller's hut was half-hidden among a wild growth of large-leaved plants and tall trees. Their courage began to fail, however, as they approached the dwelling, but, after some whispering hesitation as to who should dare to enter first, they summoned boldness enough to make their errand known. The old woman sat upon a cane mat in the center of the cabin, and, perceiving the shrinking girls, called on them to come nearer. Each successively submitted her hand for inspection, and to all were predicted extraordinary adventures and misfortunes. Josephine presented hers last, though she would have gone away unenlightened but for the persuasions of her companions. The lines of her hand being attentively examined, she was told, You will soon be married, but not to the one you love. The union will not be happy. Your husband will perish tragically, you will then marry a man who will astonish the world, and you will become an eminent woman as a superior dignity. The young girls returned to Madame de Tascher, half frightened, half unbelieving at the strange destinies predicted. But Josephine made light of the whole affair, entirely unwilling to have faith in a prophecy which, if fulfilled, must separate her from William de K., not long after, the sudden death of Maria, who was in the midst of preparations for a voyage to France, cast a deep gloom over the family, which had hitherto known only joy and gaiety. The mother could not be consoled at the loss of her favorite daughter and companion. Touched by her mother's grief, Josephine determined to imitate her sister so closely as in a manner to fill the sad vacancy which, with her sensibility, she felt most poignantly herself. At once the child became a woman. Her amusements, her reckless rambles, her gay companions were all rejected, and she remained at her mother's side or employed her hours in the most studious application to pursuits hitherto neglected. Her efforts and rapid progress surprised and attracted Madame de Tascher, and henceforth the amiable Josephine 
felt herself fully repaid for her exertions in receiving the unlimited affection and approbation of both her parents at this time the arrival of a package from france and the proposals it contained afflicted her with a new and serious anxiety the wishes of her aunt to receive her in maria's place and also to bestow her hand where her sisters had been promised were quickly made known to her by her father you promised me to william de k replied she in surprise at her father's tone of assent to the arrangement but he assured her that was no barrier as william was obliged to marry a joint heir of the estate fallen to him or forfeit the bequeathment which his father would not permit besides said he william has forgotten you you should cease to think of one who has so neglected you knowing nothing of the affectionate and overflowing letters which her parents retained from her she was persuaded to consent to what her father would allow no refusal of and after many tears regrets and useless entreaties she separated from her family her quiet home with all its happy associations and left the wild and romantic island of martinique for a home in a land where she was to reach a position and acquire a fame exceeding the wildest dreams of ambition her father could have entertained for her as the ship which was to convey her to france left port a singular phenomenon attracted the attention of all on board as well as those assembled on shore a phosphoric flame known to mariners as st elmo's fire attached itself to the masthead of the vessel throwing out jets of light and encircling the ship with crown-like rays those who had heard the prediction in respect to josephine looked upon it with superstitious awe but she was too much overcome with grief to regard it in any light and remained unconsoled during the whole voyage to a young girl scarcely fifteen it was a severe trial to be separated perhaps forever from her family and more especially from the affectionate sympathy of an amiable cultivated judicious mother she was kindly received at marseilles by her aunt madame renaudine with whom she repaired directly to fontainebleau during the ensuing month josephine could not overcome the depression of spirits fast infringing upon her health and not lessened by her knowledge of the presence of william de k in paris his frequent attempts to see her and the discovery of his unchanged affections to see him would but add to their distress since he was betrothed to another and the negotiations for her own marriage were in progress while on the other hand the young viscount beauharnois was extremely repugnant to the match though he had admired the picture of maria he was extremely disappointed in josephine and at the same time was entirely devoted to a madame de v who possessed his affections josephine bewildered and ill but still dutiful to the commands of her parents 
permitted her aunt and the Marquis de Beauharnois to use their influence with the Viscount, but she entreated permission to retire to a convent on the plea of her ill health. The Abbey de Panthemont was selected by Madame Renaudin. Josephine remained there nearly a year, and, at the expiration of that time, became the wife of Alexander de Beauharnois. He is described as an amiable, accomplished man, of noble and dignified bearing, and a favorite at court, where he obtained the sobriquet of the Beau-Dancer from his graceful participation in the festivities of Versailles. He highly esteemed Josephine, but his unabated attachment for Madame de V, together with the scandal continually poured into the ears of his wife, gave rise to such jealousy on her part as to destroy their domestic peace. The birth of her son, Eugene, for a time diverted her, but, through the maliciousness of her rival, Beauharnois, in his turn, became jealous of her early love. Annoyed by her tears and reproaches, he left her, on the plea of business, to remain several months at Versailles. Josephine then withdrew entirely from the gaiety in which her new possession had thrown her. Though her debut at court had been a flattering one, and the favors shown her by Marie Antoinette were sufficient to give eclat to her present, yet she gladly escaped from the vortex of pleasure in which the giddy French were continually involved, and retired to a quiet retreat at Croce, where she resumed her long-neglected studies, successfully cultivating the talents that, now fully awakened, gave a more decided tone to her character. She was grieved at the neglect of her husband, but she was greatly consoled in her trials by the birth of Hortense, the more welcome since she was deprived of the society and care of her idolized son, whom his father had placed at a private boarding-house. Hearing from Madame Renaudine of Beauharnois' intentions to obtain a divorce, she retired to the convent which had before received her, determined to remain till the suit was decided. Confident of her own innocence, and sincerely attached to the man, who was strangely blinded to her faithful affection through the misrepresentations of spies upon her movements, and overwhelmed with grief at the turmoil in which her sensitive heart was continually plunged, she shut herself within the gloomy walls of the Abbe de Pontemont, submissively enduring and performing the innumerable penances imposed upon her by the abbess. Hortense was her companion in this grim, sombre prison-house, lessening the tediousness of the long melancholy hours. Two weary years dragged away thus, serving at least to obliterate every trace of frivolity that might have remained from her light-hearted girlhood, and giving that dignity and composure to her manner which are the impress of long-continued grief. It also enabled her to cultivate, though unconsciously, 
a fortitude of character valuable in her after-trials, and so chastened her spirit as to inspire her with ready sympathy in the afflictions of others, a trait that endeared her to the French nation when she wielded the power of an empress, and one which she could not have possessed to so keen a degree but for her own early trials. As soon as the Parliament at Paris had decided the suit of divorce in her favor, she determined to return to Martinique, but, unable to prevail upon Beauharnois to allow Eugene to accompany her, she was obliged to embark alone with Hortense. Two years of quiet home life in her native island somewhat restored the natural cheerfulness of her temper. Yet the remembrance of her husband and son, widely separated from her, often disturbed the otherwise complete rest under her father's roof. Another interview with Euphemia, the fortune-teller, confirmed the superstitious belief she entertained in the destiny that awaited her. It was with both fear and joy, therefore, that she again left Martinique for the scenes which henceforth tended towards the accomplishment of her elevation. The news of Beauharnois's acknowledgment of his wife's innocence and the readiness to receive her again reawakened all her affection and had induced her to seek the shores of France and reunite the divided family. They met at Paris. Hortense, who already gave promise of much beauty, was presented to her father in the free, graceful dress of a young creole. He was surprised to find himself possessed of so lovely a daughter, while Josephine rejoiced equally in meeting with Eugene, from whom she had so long been separated. Several months of peaceful reconciliation succeeded, and Josephine was at last happy. Beauharnois had at this time attained the rank of major of a regiment of infantry. He was also a representative in the National Assembly, and, in the following year, 1791, was appointed president of that body. Josephine listened with deep interest to the political discussions now carried on in her saloons, which were the resort of the most prominent members of the assembly, but she could not conceal her anxiety as to the future of France, and the fate of those who, she foresaw, were to take the lead in the rapidly approaching struggle. Beauharnois preserved a mild, firm bearing throughout the storm that soon burst with frightful havoc upon the nation, remaining loyal to his king, whom he venerated and loved, while he saw and urged the necessity of the monarch's compliance with the demands of the people. At the flight of the king, he displayed a firmness and calmness that challenged even the admiration of his enemies. He loudly declaimed against the execution of the monarch. In 1793, he was appointed general-in-chief of the Army of the Rhine. He was accompanied during that short campaign by Eugene, then scarcely twelve years old, and who had already exhibited military capacity of a high order. 
in consequence of political difficulties and the withdrawal of the most efficient men from the army general beauharnois sent in his resignation and on his return to france was ordered to retire twenty leagues from the frontiers he remained in quiet seclusion during a short period until he fell under suspicion was arrested brought to paris and like the host who already crowded the prisons awaited in chains a speedy death end of section eighteen